The pandemic has revealed remarkable, unfortunate inequities in all forms, whether it's online learning, whether it's issues of race or mental health and well-being. We are not all in this together. And the other phrase that drives me crazy is, we look forward to returning to normal. Things weren't normal and effective before the pandemic, and there needs to be a major rethink as a result of what we've learned from the pandemic. Our role as universities is really to move very much into professional skills development, being influenced by the change in technology and the man-machine interface. We have now made a course on artificial intelligence compulsory for all our students. And be prepared for this world, which none of us really knows what it's going to be like, but we certainly know it's not going to be what it was two years ago. Over the five previous episodes of this series of the Internationalist podcast, we've explored the impact of digital technology on higher education. We've looked at the skills needed for the future, how technology can be used to bridge the digital divide, the future of blended learning, and what this all means for the campus. Most people agree that the pandemic has increased the speed at which we've adapted to using technology. Meetings via video conferencing are the norm, In fact, we've recorded this entire series remotely, and we've become more used to doing day-to-day things online. Companies such as Amazon have seen their profits soar during the past year. So is technology now essential for our daily lives? Are we on the brink of a technological revolution that will change the way we live, work, and relate to one another? And how do we manage technology before it begins to manage us? In this episode, the last in the series, We'll be looking beyond higher education to the role of technology in wider society and how universities can and should influence this. I'm Natasha Locken. My guests are Dr. Aruna Tiwari, Associate Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology Indore in India, and Professor Ian Golding, Professor of Globalisation and Development at the University of Oxford in the UK. I'd like to start by really reflecting, I suppose, on the impact of the pandemic and asking you, Ian, what has changed in the past year? Is it technology or is it actually people and our perceptions of that technology? I think it's mainly people uh, and how we use technology. There has been some technological improvements, and not least the ones that matter most, like in the development of vaccines, uh, our genomic sequencing of the pandemic. That would have not been possible uh, previously at the speed and in the way it's been done. Of course, the big issue now is ensuring that everyone on the planet benefits from it, not just the rich uh, and people in rich countries. But it's been our ability to use these technologies for good and for bad. Good things like our connectivity, having this remote uh, podcast interview is one of the aspects. And many of us are connecting with loved ones, uh, people are staying in touch, and we carrying on and able to do uh, our business and uh, our home communication because of these technologies, particularly the digital technologies. At the same time, uh, we've seen some really terrible aspects of these digital technologies. You know, the Trump... Uh, campaign, for example, the anti-vax movements, uh, the terrible racism that we're seeing in social media. These are all the other side of the same technologies that can be used for immense good, uh, bringing progress, but also can create immense division and harm. And so this really, 
I think, highlights and what the pandemic has shown uh, is not only that it exacerbates and reveals inequalities, but it shows the importance of regulation of institutions, of societies choosing and individuals choosing uh, how we use these technologies. And of course, universities have a vital role to play in revealing and highlighting the benefits for inventing the technologies and making them like the vaccines, which came, one came out of Oxford University, my university. Uh, at the same time, we need to explore the dangers and come up uh, with suggestions regarding the policies that we need to manage them because technologies on their own, uh, like the splitting of the atom or like a knife which can be used to cut food or to kill someone, these are dual-use weapons and we need to make sure that we use them for our own good and the good of humanity. Aruna, would you agree? Is this very much about, I guess, what people in society do next, as it were, the choices we make about how to use technology? I'm agreeing with Professor Golden. I'm talking in context of the technological changes or the way the artificial intelligence, AI, can be used as a technological thing during this pandemic. AI always work on the uh, collection of data. So if we look at the aspect of this vaccination, how uh, this discoveries has been happened regarding the drugs or the vaccines or the uh, other kinds of things in healthcare scenario for fighting against this corona. Uh, it's because of uh, that huge data is being collected in very fast manner, right? And exchange across the scientists and researchers and it, uh, it was uh, became possible to perform data analytics so fast and these discoveries happen. So this is only because of digital revolution. I'm working in the area for plant genome sequencing since many years. So I know how to work with the genome sequences. Recently, we started working with uh, the COVID-19 related disease diagnosis as well. The AI researchers see it's similar one for any living organism. It may be a plant or a human being. So if we talk about this COVID-19, there are a lot many variations of these virus, you know, and many more keep on coming. So that combination of genome sequencing can be done in faster manner because we are having AI uh, and data analytics approaches, uh, which are the software level approaches and more faster computing. And we can make lot many predictions at the early stage. It's a great example of what people have been saying, and you said yourself for years, that you know, AI is potentially the solution to our pressing problems. But also there's threats, which is what, Ian, you were saying as well. It's a dual use. What do you think, Aruna, is the role of digital technology in actually creating more inclusive societies? If you look at the AI, nowadays everyone is using this thing. So maybe person is not educated, not knowing how to work with the AI devices. Still, that fellow is using or dependent somehow uh, the AI technology, some way directly or indirectly, because, you know, uh, uneducated person is also having mobile phone. I want to take one more example. Before three months, I started collaborating with Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi, uh, under a Rural Technology Action Group. This forum says that you identify the problem in villages and you develop technologies for them. They are just enjoying their mobile, but behind that conversation, some AI software was playing the role of data collection from satellite and finding out the information that where the water level is good. 
So it's becoming possible only because of that AI software we are developing. But obviously, we need to train the common men for working with them. That's the real need. And government has to decide the policies once device is available. The drives, companies are there. And there are many schemes which has already been initiated in government of India. And so, Ian, it feels like the technology is there and it's ready to be used in terms of inclusion through technology, it comes down to sort of governments and how they choose to use it. Would you agree with that? The government's having to drive that agenda. Governments uh, are important, uh, but governments act on information they have, policies that are divided, and they reflect power relationships. You know, the idea that government is somehow a neutral observer of this whole thing and acts in the interests of everyone, I think is a naive idea. Governments get lobbied by big technology companies. They reflect particular interests and they often, because the the poor and the marginalized often don't have much political power, uh, don't often reflect their interests. It's not only governments that need to be active in this. Uh, Citizens need to be aware of the consequences. Universities have a key role to play and uh, other organizations like civil society organizations, trade unions, So it requires a very rapid education. But on the inclusive question, my view is that AI and the digital world can lead to more inclusive societies, but it also can be lead to much more divided and unequal societies. And examples of both are, for example, we urgently need the development of new crops uh, with improved nutrition to withstand the ravages of the climate emergency uh, on water, on temperature, on, on others. Otherwise, many people will starve. And that's going to require genetic sequencing and a new green revolution, uh, not least for Africa and places that haven't yet had a green revolution. We need financial inclusion to allow people to get affordable finance. And we're seeing what, for example, M-Pesa in Kenya has done in, in this respect. People don't know that they're using AI when they access finance or plant a new seed. At the same time, uh, I'm very concerned about the loss of jobs uh, that will come from AI. I think this is a not a fourth industrial revolution, which implies that it will lead to progress and people will be better off. These are not easy times. They're dramatic transformations. And if uh, robots, automation digital services in the cloud, take the jobs of everyone that works in call centers, that works in repetitive manufacturing, because these will be done by robots, as is already happening in many countries. Um, Where are the jobs going to come from? Where are particularly the unskilled and repetitive jobs going to come from? Well, some will come from things that machines can't yet do, like care services uh, and, and other services. But a lot of the, the, the jobs that are the ladder to development, which is the manufacturing jobs, the services jobs in call centers and back offices like exist in Bangalore and many places in India, those are threatened by AI-enabled digital services uh, in the cloud. That's a choice we need to take as societies, not necessarily to stop the the technologies progressing, but to ensure that we have the jobs and the transition and that these jobs are for the sorts of people that are losing their jobs, not just for high-skilled people. So it's a very, very significant question about whether it increases inclusion or not. That is a societal choice, like everything with technology. What we invest in, what universities invest in, what the research is and how it's used 
uh, is a p thing that people decide, not machines decide, uh, or AI services. And you mentioned the climate emergency. We've seen in the past year that video conferencing, for example, means a lot fewer flights and therefore less pollution from aviation, as one example. Is a digital economy a greener economy, in your opinion, Ian? Not necessarily, no. I mean, firstly, digital and cloud services are now in many cities the biggest users of energy. And, you know, in Amsterdam, something like a quarter of energy demand uh, is from computing and related services. The growth of things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is rapidly escalating these. Uh, so anyone that, that uses Bitcoin and thinks they're doing good for the climate needs to look at the data on this. It's devastating for the climate. Of course, a lot depends on where these computers and digital services are. And if they're driven off hydro or if renewable energy drives them, then you could argue that digital services might be uh, cleaner than physical connectivity. But even that, you need to look at the evidence because it might well be, you know, the manufacture of computers and of digital equipment uh, is in itself extremely energy intensive. And of course, it leads to the mining of, of many minerals in, in some very, very unsatisfactory conditions. Batteries uh, being the classic example for electric vehicles. So, uh, but there are many, many others. Our, our, our mobile phones contain things which we need to hope and which requires checking uh, is not done by, you know, child laborers in an artisanal mine somewhere. So computers on and digital is not necessarily green. People were saying, uh, well, one good thing about the pandemic is that it has led to less flying, less driving, therefore carbon emissions have gone down. And trying to understand why they, in fact, they've gone up, have now hit a new record is very important. But a part of the answer is computers and digital and the growth of digital demand for energy. We've spoken a lot about the skills that people need, skills in the context of employment and thinking about the role of automation, thinking about lifelong learning, which is obviously something that universities are engaged in, but also the skills that people need to engage with technology critically and sort of manipulate it as much as it manipulates them. What skills do people need to navigate the digital future? We need to understand the power uh, of these new technologies and we need to understand the, the possible consequences and make choices. Uh, the silos that people get into uh, on social media and get misinformation, the fake news. And this is all becoming more and more sophisticated. You know, someone could take my face and voice and make me say something else uh, on it, deep fake. Uh, very worrying. My own sense is that we need uh, a, a more solid grounding in education systems, in ethics. We need to have a more solid grounding in critical thinking. And of course, the more autocratic governments are, and the more they control the media, the more dangerous that is, because we just have no optionality if you're in an autocratic country where government controls uh, what people hear and see. But even in democratic countries, uh, we see an extraordinary convergence into very narrow paths of thinking because of social media. So I think there's a real danger um, that we, we become uncritical thinkers, that we get uh, our biases get reinforced, and that instead of what was dreamed of by the creators of the internet, 
um, and the World Wide Web in the early 90s, being a great equalizing force of the spread of information which would bring progress in the world, which is what we all hoped it would do, um, it leads to greater and greater division. And so controlling advertising and the, the models by which the, the big business models by which social media operate, you know, they make 95% of their money from advertising. We think we're getting something for free, but actually we are the product that's being sold. Uh, our preferences are what are being sold. And um, they're using us and they're not paying us for it. And, more wor and worse than that, uh, they not only use our data and our information, but they change our ways of thinking um, without us even knowing about it. And that is, to me, the biggest issue that needs addressing, that we need to ensure that the dream of a digital world, uh, which is that we can share information, have more choice, uh, and be able to progress in our lives through better decision-making is realized, that's going to require not just governments, but governments are often the problem, not the solution here. Um, we, this is going to require citizens uh, understanding this potential, what's happening, uh, and being active. So a wide range of skills, uh, but mainly skills, I would say, around look at what you're seeing on social media critically, and how do you do that? Uh, and how do you ensure that what you're seeing is real? Uh, and how do you challenge it? and keep challenging it and keep learning from it. You've mentioned that it should not just be the role of governments. Universities are obviously engaged in the sphere. There's business, there's the tech companies themselves, there's, there's other employers, there's civil society, as you've mentioned. And then if you think about universities specifically in their role, just thinking about some of the things we've discussed, obviously there's the innovation piece and the research and the technological development there is providing evidence, I guess, for policymakers to help drive some of the regulation, for example. And then there is this this really strong call for, for critical thinking. How does that work in practice? Who should universities be working with? And, and what should their role be? Well, I think in practice, it means that universities need to do their job, which is to teach people to learn critically. You need to understand the, the sort of Silicon Valley idea that technology brings good and that Google does no evil needs to be critically analyzed. One needs to understand that technologies operate within a context uh, and we make that context through the rules, regulations, our norms, our behaviors, what we do. And uh, that's what universities need to do. And, and you can have university degrees which focus specifically on that, but Ordinary citizens around the world engaging. I think universities, in a way, too late. This needs to start at kindergarten. And of course, what we do in the home is also important. Do we allow our children to, to look at their phones during a meal? Or do we want them to talk to us and discuss something? You know, the number of times I go into homes or restaurants now and, and seeing people on their devices and even communicating across a table with each other on through their devices astounds me. And I'm pretty old, so that I didn't grow up with this. Uh, but I believe that that changing in behavior is something we need to be very conscious of and think consciously about uh, at home, at universities, at school, and in all dimensions. Final question. Aaron, I'll come to you first. In five years time, how will technology have changed our lives? 
so as professor goldian already mentioned that everyone sitting with their devices everyone if you go to the airport or if you go to the malls or anywhere in fact in home itself if there are five persons in home everyone is having their cell phone and the kids and the teenagers and obviously the person is in job is on nowadays it is on mobile because everything is on online and keeps on increasing and the situation is in pandemic it's must for kids like we started stopping them don't play this mobile phone or game or this thing but we cannot say no now because they used to say that every information is coming on the cell phone because education is also online so we cannot stop them to interact with uh, this computer screen or you know this mobile phone anyway they are not away from this uh, digital technology and uh, it is stopping that uh, you know external activities external games that is really must for physical fitness it's a harmful thing you know since so the last 5 years you look at the education aspect as well it is affecting the kids in this way due to this gaming stuff they are very much engaged in this apart from going to the grounds and playing something and developing their social uh, aspects and uh, you know exchanging the ideas and learning more things in that way that is stopped in india as well it is affecting so much uh, to the younger ones in fact every man is realizing the problems which people are facing due to this digital devices mainly with this cell phone and in in 5 years time how will technology have changed our lives i hope it saved us i hope that everyone in the world is vaccinated and that we've got through covid-19 but not only got through covid-19 but stopped future pandemics which is you know could be even worse than covid-19 so that's my first hope but also that we learn that through that process of creating a global distribution and understanding covid-19 that is which is the title of my new book that it rescues us because it teaches us to cooperate it teaches us to use technology for good and we can stop future pandemics but not only stop future pandemics we can also use technologies to dramatically reduce our carbon emissions to adapt and mitigate the impact of the climate emergency and that also requires global distribution you know in paris in 2015 100 billion dollars was promised uh, to developing countries to ensure that they could get energy and get clean energy a green growth that hasn't happened so that is about money and technology spreading around the world which will give the over billion people that have no energy uh, clean energy and allowing india and other countries to move from their terrible flows of carbon you know one of the biggest coal producers is india and people in india using digital technology are contributing greatly to that uh, but so too in many countries like germany which also is a very big user of coal so the technology is needed to deal with the emergency that's all around us which is the climate emergency and it's needed to also help grow literacy and uh, democracy human rights around the world for individuals empowerment not least to overcome discrimination against women you can point a mobile phone at a situation you can use it as as many women are around the world to report on being attacked in their homes during lockdown it can be a great great source of progress but we need to 
address it. And there's going to have to, I believe, be a regulation of the big technology firms in order for that to happen in the digital space. Uh, there's a really interesting conversation going on in the US at the present. And there's real hope that things could be happening, including the taxation of digital technology firms, which is absolutely essential because they will basically say they're in the cloud uh, when they in Cayman Islands or somewhere. There are many other technologies as well that need uh, harnessing, and there are many dangerous ones out there. The nuclear threat has not gone away, and the rising geopolitical tensions with Russia, with China, are extremely worrying in this regard, but so too is the proliferation of nuclear threats around the world. So these old threats, because they're new technology, doesn't mean we need to take the, the eye off the ball of old technological threats. The greatest tragedy of technologies is that many people, as Aruna mentioned, still live in a world unaffected in some respects from technology. People still use bullocks to plow their fields in India and many, many countries in a pre-industrial revolution technology. There's enormous potential for existing technologies to be spread to improve people's lives and productivity. But a key question which we need to keep coming back to is, is it improving their lives or is it putting them out of jobs? And that is going to be a big, big question and could also have negative consequences for the future of cities where most people live. Uh, rich people are escaping to the suburbs and to further out. And the ecosystems of cities are being challenged in dramatic new ways. So in five years' time, I hope we have vibrant, healthier, cleaner cities because of technology, not more devastated, emptying out of wealth uh, cities where poor people are left without jobs. So there's many, many things that we need to look to for technology. And the next five years are crucial. The decisions we take now will affect the next hundred years, whether it's on climate change, whether it's on pandemics, whether it's on the future of cities, whether it's on the future of work. So this is really a timely opportunity for you to have this podcast and to help people to think more deeply about technologies and the choices we face. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Aruna Tiwari, Associate Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology Indore in India, and Professor Ian Golden, Professor of Globalisation and Development at the University of Oxford in the UK. And I'd also like to thank all the other guests who have taken part in this series. The Internationalist is available to listen wherever you get your podcasts, so please do subscribe, like, comment and share. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. Just search for the Association of Commonwealth Universities. The Internationalist is presented by me, Natasha Locken, and produced by Jill Davis. It's an Earshot Strategies production for the Association of Commonwealth Universities.